Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlesbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. I wanted to mention today uh, we had a compliment from Feedspot. They canvas thousands of podcasts on mothers and motherhood and being a mom. And we made their top 40 list. And so you can find that uh, will be in the notes, linked in the notes to this podcast. Um, We're number 29, I think. And so we've been growing and that's super exciting. Thank you for sharing this out and writing reviews and letting your friends and family know about our message of principles and purpose in motherhood. We hope that it's having a positive influence on you and your families and hope you'll continue to share it out and let others know about us as uh, these podcasts are valuable to you. I get to do something today and that is talk about one of my favorite people in the world (laughs) I've read. Probably more works from um, C.S. Lewis than maybe anyone else. He continues to fascinate me and teach me and kind of nurture me mentally and um, spiritually as well. So I'm very, very grateful to him and for his life. I'm going to attempt to do a good job of talking about his life and childhood. And it will look different in terms of lots of times when I do these mission-driven stories, I'm talking about uh, their lives in terms of the seven laws of life mission. And clearly he lived those seven laws. We see his great love for God, um, the way that he cared for himself and managed himself and knew his gifts in the way that he strove to obey his conscience and live true to principles and definitely was a truth seeker and one of our most valuable sources on natural law. So definitely in line with that law. And then of course, his unbelievable education, which we'll talk about. And then hearing the call when his conversion came, some of those other laws were already in place, especially where it came to self-discovery and had great levels of self uh, management and discipline and and an incredible education, and he turned those gifts to um, to the use of God. Anyway, I'm going to just dive into his childhood. I'm quoting extensively from his book, Surprised by Joy, which is about his spiritual conversion. And it's pretty academic because that's his way of being. And he was really brilliant and much of his conversion was, was intellectual and it was based around, um, finding those arguments for what's true and what's real. So I'm not going to get into a lot of the details of that kind of stuff. You can read the book for that, but I will give you a sense of what this journey was like for him and some of the truths that he discovered that are really, really valuable for us. It's, it's predominantly a conversion to God and theology, which then led to a conversion um, of, of Christ to Christ as well. So he was born a Christian, kind of, basically, and he talks quite extensively about his father. Um, 
he tries very hard to be respectful of his father and to be fair with who his father was. But his father uh, was pretty disconnected uh, from his kids. He, um, he came from professional individuals. His mother was a Hamilton with many generations of clergymen, lawyers, sailor, sailors, and the like. And she talks about how different her parents were. I was aware of the vivid contrast between my mother's cheerful and tranquil affection and the ups and downs of my father's emotional life. This bred in me long before I was old enough to give it a name, a certain distrust or dislike of emotion. So he felt like his mom was kind of a little bit more emotionally grounded and really a strong kind of anchor for his dad. And, uh, and then of course, uh, we'll talk about this in a minute. She died when he was young. So she was a voracious reader. He was predominantly homeschooled until he was eight. Um, he loved to read from a very young age. He was very gifted with language and talks about the endless books that he would choose. His mother played a role in his education. I think she took charge of English and French, and he had a nurse, a, a tutor that helped with the rest of his education. And then he had a brother. When he was about five, they moved kind of to a little country estate, but he talks about how his dad was always being taken advantage of and that the home wasn't built correctly. And so there were lots of things wrong with it that his dad was endlessly complaining about. But he and his brother didn't mind, and they loved all of the land around the property, and they, they loved how big it was, and, and, and just endless bookshelves. And so uh, he and his brother played creatively, and he came to create a land which he called Animal Land. It was a place where animals came to life, where they spoke, and he said he was incessantly drawing and so reading, writing, imagining, and drawing were a major part of his life from the time that he was very young. He said that there really weren't any real religious experiences that happened in his home. I don't know. Uh, he was taught to say his prayers. They went to church. But it really wasn't part of a fabric, the fabric of the way that they lived their lives. And uh, he, said, he said of his father, it would be hard to find an equally intelligent man who cared so little for metaphysics. And, and so that wasn't really part of their framework, although I, I guess it was like a habit that they had, but I don't know that it was in how much it was in his parents' hearts. Um, oh, he did French and Latin with his mother and continued to develop his animal land. It was in medieval times. And of course, if you've read any of his Narnia books, you can see the seeds of that at a very young age that he uh, loved to play in that world. He created a map of it and he read lots of children's books, which he enjoyed. Beatrix Potter books were an especial love. And um, from the ages of six, seven, and eight, he said, I was living almost entirely in my imagination. He said that he was training himself to be a novelist by chronicling animal, animal land and reading all the books that he read. And then he talks about three experiences. And these three experiences are really critical. They seem, may seem to us, and maybe to other people as well, to be unimportant. But to him, they were everything. They came at a young age, 
And they're the reason this work is called Surprised by Joy. And they were the seeds which brought about his reconversion to God. He was standing out beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day. And he said, there arose suddenly in me without warning, as if from a depth not of years, but of centuries, the memory of the morning at the at his old house when my brother had brought his toy garden into the nursery. It's difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden, giving the full ancient meaning of enormous, come somewhere near to it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? Not certainly for a biscuit tin filled with moss, nor even for my own past. And before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn, the world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. It had taken only a moment of time, and in a certain sense, everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. So he has this incredibly strong emotional experience, but it's a specific type of emotional experience. And even at a young age, uh, it stayed with him. I don't know that at this age he was analytical enough to analyze what it was that was going on with him. But it stayed with him. So then the second glimpse came when he was reading Squirrel Nutkin by Beatrix Potter. The rest of them were entertaining. This one administered the shock. It was a trouble. It troubled me with what I can only describe as the idea of autumn. It sounds fantastic to say that one can be enamored of a season, but that is something like what happened. And as before, the experience was, was one of intense desire. And that's really important because the element of the experience, this desire, was a key component in his later analyzing those, those small experiences and asking that question again and again, desire for what? And it's, it's actually played a role. I mean, I, I already was a woman of faith, but it has deepened my faith to see these experiences and parallel them with my own experiences. And so you can take just a second right now and kind of analyze your own life for this type of experience. Um, this, I know precisely what he's talking about. I think, I think probably most of us do. It brings tears to my eyes often. Um, it, it usually is fleeting. It's, it's very intense. It's an ache. And, um, and then it's gone. So the third one came when he was reading Longfellow's Saga of King Olaf. And he read this stanza. I heard a voice that cried, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. I knew nothing about Balder, but instantly I was uplifted into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described, except that it is cold, spacious, severe, pale, and remote, and then, as in the other examples, found myself at the very moment already falling out of the desire and wishing I were back in it. Now, that's the other element to this ex emotional experience is that um, it's brief, it's intense, it's an ache and a desire that is almost painful and seems as though it would be something that you wouldn't want to experience again because of the longingness of it and, and almost an inability ful to fulfill it. But there's this other component about it that you want to feel that again. 
And yet you cannot bring it on through sheer willpower. It is something that has to come about of its own. And, and one of the things that, that Lewis says about it is that it, it also comes when you are completely, um, in, engrossed in something, not yourself. So you have to be outside of yourself. You have to be, these happened often, these happened with him predominantly in literary experiences of, of more uplifted nature and in nature. And so he goes on to say, and I think this is so telling, the reader who finds these three episodes of no interest need read this book no further. For in a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. And I know what he means. I hope you know what he means. And if he doesn't, then as we, as I kind of go through his life and describe other experiences, um, maybe we can have more conversation about this in the mastermind group. And maybe you can ponder your life a little bit more and, and we can think about this, but I know what he's talking about and I've experienced it many times. Um, and I do feel that the more I try to lose myself in work that I feel God wants me to do, I do feel that the frequency of this experience does increase. He calls this experience joy. It is something that comes from outside of us. It is um, an intense desire and longing that is usually momentary, but that we wish to have again and cannot recreate. Uh, it is sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally well be called a, a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is a kind we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power and pleasure often is. And he does, he does say a couple different times in this work that he does believe that, that we do try to find joy in pleasure and, and in seeking happiness, our own happiness. And that it can't be obtained that way. And so the more we seek it that way, the, 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 the further it, it, go, it flees from us. There are other ways in which it has to be uh, perhaps sought. Now, about this time, he loses his mother. She comes down with a cancer that can't be cured she's, she's quickly gone. I, I think he's about nine ish, nine to 10. He says that his father never fully recovered from the loss. And because his father didn't have the emotional skills to recover from the loss of his wife, and because he never had a particular connection to his boys, Lewis says, thus by a peculiar cruelty of fate during those months, the unfortunate man, his father, had he but known it, was really losing his sons as well as his wife. And so he didn't know how to connect with his boys. He didn't know how to help them grieve. Um, and so they all splintered. The family really splintered at that point. Now, in the midst of this experience, he had an interesting, uh, I guess, I don't know, you might say religious experience, not necessarily spiritual, but 
he didn't really have a very good sense of the nature of God or, or what prayer was really all about or how it really worked. And so um, he said when her case was pronounced hopeless, when the doctors told him that she was probably going to die of cancer, I remembered what I had been taught, that prayers offered in faith would be granted. I accordingly, accordingly set myself to produce by willpower a firm belief that my prayers for her recovery would be successful, and as I thought, I achieved it. When nevertheless she died, I shifted my ground and worked myself into a belief that there was to be a miracle. The interesting thing is that my disappointment produced no results uh, beyond itself. He goes on to say that I think the truth is that the belief into which I had hypnotized myself was itself too irreligious for its failure to cause any religious revolution. I had approached God or by, or my idea of God without love, without awe and without fear. He was in my mental picture of this miracle to appear neither as savior nor as judge, but merely as a magician. And so unfortunately his ignorance of the nature of God, um, really led to, you know, kind of an indifference about God. So about this time, he's sent off to a boarding school. I think it must have been the case that his brother was already there. And uh, he accompanied his brother. They were unfortunately very happy to kind of leave their father's presence. And when they were home, they were happy when he wasn't around the house. It's really quite tragic. Um, and, and he had learned from his father to kind of hate emotion. He felt that he kind of saw that weakness in his father. And um, and so he went to this new boarding school. He felt that the area was very ugly. And if you've ever read, if you've read some of Charles Dickens' works, um, he has a lot to say about boarding schools. I just uh, reread Nicholas Nickleby recently. And if you've if spent any time in that work, uh, that's precisely almost exactly the kind of boarding school that C.S. Lewis was sent to. It's, a, it's, it's almost unfathomable to believe that that kind of boarding school went on and that decent families sent their boys there. But his father wouldn't believe what was really happening there. Lewis said he thinks that this man must have gone insane because he had a good reputation. And so he believes that he must have been decent at what he did earlier on. It was the kind of place where he was bored all the time where the, um, the, the principal often whipped the boys into obedience. And the only thing that was really taught decently was geometry. And he was kind of half starved, um, bored out of his mind, very unhappy, uh, physically dirty. I mean, just a really, really, really horrible place. And, um, and so he was very, very happy to get out of there. He and his brother were there for, uh, I think he must have been there at least a couple of years, maybe three. And he does believe that the guy um, went insane. He, he said that there was a great decline in his imaginative life during this time. And he didn't have any religious experiences of any kind. He said when they had vacations and they went home and were were around their father. He said, everything invited us to develop a life that had no connection with our father, which is really unfortunate. They didn't know how to relate to him and he didn't know how to relate to them. And when they wouldn't, when he wouldn't listen to them about what was happening at boarding school, of course, that just unbelievably aggravated everything. So finally, by about 13, he must've spent two to three years in this horrible boarding school. He was sent to, um, a different school, Wyvern, 
that was a more upscale, not just a boys' school for young boys, but for older boys, um, many of whom were preparing for college. And it was also a boarding school for boys. He said, here my education really began. I made my first real friends, and I ceased to be a Christian. So he met a woman called Miss C. She was their, like, um, she was their matron. And he says of her, she was one of the most selfless people I've ever known. We all loved her, and I, the orphan especially. It so happened that Miss C, who seemed old to me, was still in her spiritual immaturity, still hunting with the eagerness of a soul that had a touch of angelic quality in it for a truth and a way of life. And so she became an occultist. And so um, Lewis is exposed to this. And of course, it has all of the elements of, you know, high emotional spirituality with none of the religious obligations. And so it's attractive. He dabbles in it. Um, and, and he kind of becomes hooked. He says, now for the first time there burst upon me the idea that there might be real marvels all about us, that the visible world might be only a curtain to conceal huge realms uncharted by my very simple theology. And that started in me something which on and off I have had plenty of trouble since, the desire for the preternatural, simply as such the passion for the occult. Not everyone has this disease. Those who have it will know what I mean. I once tried to describe it in a novel. It is a spiritual lust and like the lust of the body, it has the fatal power of making everything else in the world seem uninteresting while it lasts. So... The pattern of his spiritual life so far is a very indifferent, habitual religiosity in his home, and then um, an attempt at a connection with God that's totally fruitless, a horrible experience um, in a in a boarding school, and now a fascination with with the supernatural. And so. He, he goes on to explain that <laughs> this helped him eventually to lose his theology and eventually um, to lose any belief in anything supernatural. And that happened when he really set into his um, kind of rational thinking mode, which came later. He was still young, 13, 14 years old, and dabbling in the supernatural was fun for a time. But he really, he says... He says, I was already desperately anxious to get rid of my religion because what had happened to him is that uh, he had decided that in order to be religious, he needed to try religion again in order to see if it were real. So <laughs> he had these unbelievably painful experiences with prayer because he didn't really never was taught properly. He was told he was supposed to pray. And it was this horrible, horrible experience for him. So this is kind of how it went. He said that uh, he tried to put prayer into practice. At first, it seemed like plain sailing, but soon the false conscience came into play. One had no sooner reached amen, then it whispered, yes, but are you sure you were really thinking about what you said? And then more subtly, were you, for example, thinking about as well as you did last night? The answer, for reasons that I did not then understand, was nearly always no. Very well, said the voice. Hadn't you then better try it over again? And one obeyed, but of course with no assurance that the second attempt would be any better. My nightly task was to produce by sheer willpower a phenomenon which willpower could never produce, which was so ill-defined that I could never say 
with absolute confidence whether it had occurred and which even when it did occur was of my very mediocre was of very mediocre spiritual value so he's supposed to be having these intense experiences in prayer every night he can't figure out how to make it work and this ludicrous burden of false duties and prayer just kind of slammed the book on 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 really any religious desires and eventually he kind of lets it go so he finds the classics. He falls in love with um, with really just learning and study. He has a pretty good experience overall at this at this um, college, and he goes on to talk about an experience. He said he was reading Luc- uh, Lucretius, uh, of course. <laughs> um, so he's an he's an ancient author. We don't have time to get into Lucretius, but. He's, he's an, an early Greek, and he said, I felt the force of his argument for atheism. And, and you find this still today. It's interesting because many people think that this is some kind of original argument, but it goes all the way back to the beginning of our Western history. Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. So you can see that kind of argument all over the place in um, atheistic circles that we know better than God, and he sure messed up in making this world, and he would have done a better job were he really there. And so that's Lucretius, and, and, and it, helps, it helps give some silence to this false religious experience that he's having either on the one side with the occult or on the other side with these ridiculous prayer experiences he's going through. So he's 13 to 15 at this school and um, it's a pretty decent experience. He makes some lifelong friends and um, he gets a pretty decent education in the classics. He's doing his Greek and Latin and all the things. Overall, uh, educationally, it was okay. One of the biggest issues, he, he didn't have problems really morally in that sense. And he didn't, um, he lost his faith, whatever faith there was. And I, this is one of the things I really, I do think it's rare for people who have a real genuine grounded, solid faith to lose it. I do think there are a lot of people that we say have lost their faith that never really had it or found it. And he is definitely an example of that. I have people close to me who are very good examples of that. But one of the worst things that this school did for him, apart from kind of, you know, all of the typical boy, you know, stuff, was he, it, it made him what he called him, he, he called himself a prig, which really just essentially means that he became, he came to understand um, in a real sense just how smart he was, how gifted he was. And it made him very prideful. It made him proud of his own ability to choose quality works and his own ability to break them apart and see things. I'm sure he got a lot of um, really positive feedback from mentors and tutors at the school. And so um, that was was one of the biggest negative impacts on his character that he had to kind of, he talks about spending his life trying to get over that and trying not to be prideful in that way because there's lots of different kinds of pride. If you've ever read his uh, screw tape letters, it's a great little example and examination of all the ways that um, that we get hooked into these false prides, and that's one of them. Anyway, uh, he also one of the most important one of the other most important things that happened at this boarding school was that he fell in love with mythology. Now he always kind of had some attraction to to that that sort of book and to poetry, but 
He really fell in. North, Norse mythology was his favorite, and he read them quite extensively. There was a richness to them um, that that played a part later on in his um, spiritual conversion. So after this experience in the boarding school, he goes off to live with a man he called the Great Knock. Uh, Kirkpatrick was his name, and um, he absolutely loves it there. I want to read you just a tiny bit of the kind of experience that he has because it plays a huge role in who Lewis becomes. And it shows you just what kind of price he paid intellectually to become the kind of brilliant man he became. So he's heard these things from his dad about how sentimental the knock, the great knock is. And he's really worried about that because he doesn't like that kind of thing. So he gets off the train and they shake hands and they're walking back to this man's house. He's going to live with him. He winds up living with him for three years under his tutelage. It sounds as if he may have been the only pupil there. Uh, that may not have been the case, but he had absolute freedom. And I'll tell you in just a second what his schedule looked like because it's unbelievable. They're walking and, and Kirk says, you are now proceeding along the principal artery between Great and Little Bookham. I stole a glance at him. Was this geographical exordium a heavy joke, or was he trying to conceal his emotions? His face, however, showed only an inflexible gravity. I began to make conversation in the deplorable manner which I had acquired at those evening parties, and indeed found increasingly necessary to use with my father. I said I was surprised at the scenery of Surrey. It was much wilder than I had expected. Stop! shouted Kirk. With a suddenness that made me jump. What do you mean by wildness and what grounds had you for not expecting it? I replied, I don't know, still making, I don't know what, still making conversation. As answer after answer was torn to shreds and at last dawned upon me, he really wanted to know. He wasn't making conversation or joking or snubbing me. He wanted to know. I was stung into attempting a real answer. A few paces suffice to show, passes suffice to show that I had no clear and distinct idea corresponding to the word wildness, and that insofar as I had any idea at all, wildness was a singularly inept word. Do you not see, then, concluded the great knock, that your remark was meaningless? I prepared to sulk a little, assuming that the subject would now be dropped. Never was I more mistaken in my life. Having analyzed my terms, Kirk was proceeding to deal with my proposition as a whole on what I had based my expectation about the flora and geology of Surrey. Was it maps or photographs or books? I could produce none. I had, heaven help me, it had, never, heaven help me, never occurred to me that what I called my thoughts needed to be based on anything. Kirk once more drew a conclusion without the slightest sign of emotion, but equally without the slightest concession to what I thought good manners, do you not see then that you had no right to any opinion whatever on the subject? By this time, our acquaintance had lasted about three and a half minutes, but the tone set by this first conversation was preserved without a single break during all the years I spent at Bookham. Uh, he goes on to say that uh, he would he would hear three things from Kirk when they were studying something, either stop which he had heard then, which meant that he couldn't go on a moment longer. Excuse where he wanted clarity, and I hear you where it was a good idea, but he would go on to ask him, had he read this? Had he studied that? Had he any statistical evidence? And so to the almost inevitable conclusion, do you not see then that you had no right, etc.? Some boys would not have liked it. To me, it was red beef and strong beer. So for three years, he's uh, under the tutelage of this man, 
And he was a thoroughgoing atheist and never attacked religion, but never promoted it either. And it was just something, I guess, that really didn't come up much, but it really helped Lewis to be even more set in his atheism. This is what Lewis's day looked like when he was uh, living with with, uh, Kirkpatrick. They would breakfast at eight o'clock, at nine, from nine to one, he would study and write. At one o'clock, they would have lunch. From two to four, he would walk in the woods. From four to five, he would have tea and light reading. From five to seven, he would work and study more. And from seven to 11, they would have dinner, talk, and have light reading. It is no doubt for my own good that I have been so generally prevented from leading this life, for it was a life almost entirely selfish. Selfish, not self-centered, for in such a life, my mind would be directed toward a thousand things, but not to myself. The distinction is not unimportant. He goes on to explain that it was the happiest, one of the happiest times in his life. He says, I supposed I reached as much happiness as ever to be reached on earth, especially if there were some new long coveted book awaiting me. And so really, I mean, we're talking about... Four hours of hard study followed by another two hours of hard study. So that's at least six hours and then maybe three or four other hours of light reading and conversation for three straight years. So you can imagine the volume of of reading that he got through in addition to all the reading he had done as a child in his home and at at his other um, boarding school. So he makes it to Oxford, which was, of course the goal. And, um, he's a thoroughgoing atheist by this time. He feels a duty to, um, do his part in the world war one. So he goes to Oxford at 18. He spends the summer there. And on his 19th birthday, he arrives on the front. Now, one other really important thing happened at this time in conjunction with his conversion. And that was, he read Fantastes. I think that's how you say it by George MacDonald. Now, I don't have time to get George MacDonald. I did an author bio on him years ago. Absolutely love him. He's written some children's books that are phenomenal. He was a pastor, uh, incredible writer. And uh, this book, Lewis calls it holiness. And so he doesn't believe in God or anything, but he's, he's it, it was so such an intense, like spiritual, emotional experience for him that it, it was a turning point for him in terms of the way that he thought and, and, uh, about himself and about God. So he really could only be a scholar. So that's, was the goal from that point on was to be a scholar and a writer. That's what he was fit for. That's what Patrick told his dad. And so he gets to, he's in the war. He meets a man named Johnson. They kind of fight it out. Johnson is moving towards theism. He's a man of conscience, which was rare in the circles that Lewis ran in. And um, just as a side note, he had a friend from, from childhood, I think, named Patty Moore, who was in the war. And they had promised each other that if either of them died in the war, that they would take care of each other's families. Patty Moore did die in the war and Lewis kept to his promise and helped take care of Moore's mother and sister, which I think is incredibly um, admirable kind of man he was. So he meets Owen Barfield. Owen Barfield has a huge impact on him, starts to change the way that he thinks. And 
one of the major things that happens to him about this time, he's back at Oxford, he's making incredible friendships, Barfield and eventually Tolkien, um, Gerald Tolkien are two of the most influential in helping to break down his um, atheistic viewpoints, his realist viewpoint that nothing exists but this planet, uh, but, you know, tangible things, etc., etc. And what happens to him is that he comes to realize, and, and George MacDonald was one of the authors that helped him realize this. He also read Chesterton, who had a huge impact on him, and who he called the most sensible man that ever lived, um, who was a thoroughgoing Christian. He loved those works best. He started to see the connection between the mythology, the religious texts, uh, and the Christian authors, especially theist authors in general, who were the authors that had the biggest impact on him, who he returned to again and again, that he loved to read the most. He says about these authors, Indeed, I must have been as blind as a bat not to have seen long before the ludicrous contradiction between my theory of life and my actual experiences as a reader. George MacDonald had done more to me than any other writer. Of course, it was a pity he had that bee in his bonnet about Christianity. He was good in spite of it. Chesterton had more sense than all the other moderns put together, baiting, of course, his Christianity. Johnson was one of the few authors whom I felt I could trust utterly. Curiously enough, he had the same kink. Spencer and Milton, by a strange coincidence, had it too. Even among ancient authors, the same paradox was to be found. The most religious, Plato, Aeschylus, Virgil, were clearly those on whom I could really feed. On the other hand, those writers who did not suffer from religion and with whom, in theory, my sympathy ought to have been complete, Shaw and Wells and Mill and Gibbon and Voltaire, all seemed a little thin, what as boys we called tinny. It wasn't that I didn't like them, they were all especially given entertaining, but hardly more. There seemed to be no depth in them, they were too simple. The roughness and density of life did not appear in their books." George Herbert, here was a man who seemed to me to excel all the authors I had ever read in conveying the very quality of life as we actually feel it from moment to moment. Moment. So those are some of the authors that were having a profound impact on him, the biggest impact on him, and he came to see that there was something about their religious beliefs and spirituality that brought a depth to their works and a, and a clearness um, and insightfulness to truth that that he enjoyed more than any other reading because of its elevating element. So about this time, he gives up his realism and he decides that the universe, uh, everything in the universe is mental. There's a logos. There's this um, absolute mind. He says, it's astonishing at this time of day that I could regard this position as something quite distinct from theism. It was clearly some willful blindness. And um, he goes on to say, the emotion that went with this was certainly religious, but this was a religion that cost nothing. We could talk religiously about the absolute, but there was no danger of its doing anything about us. It was there, safely and immovably there. It would never come here, never to be blunt, make a nuisance of itself. This quasi-religion was all a one-way street, all eros, as Dr. Nigren would say, steaming up, but no agape darting down. There was nothing to fear, better still, nothing to obey. 
So he goes through this experience. He makes this realization about these religious authors. And he starts to feel, as he says it, God creeping up on him. And then he has this experience. He's he's really starting to break this down. And he's making these connections between this joy that he's experienced and how more much more often it occurs um, to him in these more religious works and in reflecting on nature and the divine in things. And he reads Chesterton's Everlasting Man. And he says, for the first time, saw the whole Christian outline of history set out in a form that seemed to me to make sense. So he has this, he, all of this is boiling in the back of his mind. He's given up a lot of the worldview that he had before. He's come to believe in something supernatural. There must be something more to the world. And then he has this experience. He says, early in 1926, the hardest boiled of all the atheists I ever knew sat in my room on the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. Rum thing, he went on. All that stuff of Frazier's about the dying God. Rum thing. It almost looks as if it had really happened once. To understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man who has certainly never since shown any interest in Christianity. If he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of the toughs, were not, as I would still have put it, safe, where could I turn? Was there no escape? The odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was, in fact, offered what now appears to be a moment of holy free choice. He talks about, he's, he's on a bus, and he's pondering all of this. And he realizes, it comes upon him very clearly, that he is shutting something out. That he is refusing to take the blinders off and see things for what they really are that he is being offered the choice, a free choice, to continue to shut it out and not believe in God and therefore maybe not be as accountable as he could have been. He said, neither choice was presented as a duty, no threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or take off the corslet meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. And so um, he said this was really important part of this experience for him because he realized it was a perfectly free act. It was a choice that he was making to present himself to God and see what would happen. Um, And so he began a self-evaluation process. He said... Um, an attempt at complete virtue must be made. So that was the first step that he took. I'm going to see what happens when I look really honestly at myself and how I'm living my life in contrast with what I ultimately know deep inside to be true. Really, and I think this is so fascinating, he says this, really a young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. Dangers lie in wait for him on every side. You must not do, you must not even try to do the will of the Father unless you are prepared to know of the doctrine. All my acts, desires, and thoughts were to be brought into harmony with universal spirit. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I find what appalled me. 
I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of footlet, fondlet hatreds. My name was Legion. And he realizes that he is far from what he should be and who he should be. It's interesting how he talks about guard. You can't guard your faith too carefully because I've been so steeped in, in all of these um, things that I've been reading and studying recently about what's happening on college campuses, which I already knew was, was happening and started happening a hundred years ago, which we've talked about on this podcast briefly in the past, but guarding those college campuses from any truth that might shatter the atheistic worldview any documents and stories about great men who had great faith and who had spiritual experiences, it's so important to keep those at bay so the college student can be thoroughly inundated with that atheistic worldview. So, um, and it really is true, you have to remove the evidence or people will find their faith. So he goes on to talk about um, how he comes to see that he needs God, that God must be real, that he's, he has a choice and he's going to make the choice to find out what happens if he surrenders to God. And he makes that decision. Um, he didn't know what would happen. He had no idea what was on the other side of it. It was a very, very scary experience for him. And it was his choice, which I find incredibly awesome because honestly, <laughs> That is the greatest gift we've been given is choice. And God's not going to wrangle us into belief. And all these people who want God to show up on their doorstep or think that they don't have to take steps towards him, it's just ridiculous to me. Anyway, he says this, and we are so over time. I'm sorry we're so long today, but um, I can't do Lewis justice without it going a little over time. So let me finish this up. This is Lewis. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England so the rest is history right we know that he gave his life totally to god converted completely to christianity and became one of the most powerful christian apologists of all time and all the study and all the work he had done in the past was brought to bear on the question of the reality of god and the strengthening of faith and the immense amount of good that he has done because of the free choice that he made to kneel that night is just incredible to me. And I am just so um, grateful for men like him who give themselves of their own will and women to God and let their gifts be used in his service. Ironically, he later married a woman with cancer and their marriage was short-lived And he had another great, the other great woman in his life die of cancer. There's a beautiful, beautiful movie. If you're ready for a good cry and a very inspirational night called Shadowlands. That is that story of finding his wife, marrying her and her death. 
A grief observed is his journal printed later from those experiences after her death. I did a podcast a few months ago called The Types of People in Hell that hovers around um, what he wrote in The Great Divorce about the experiences of heaven and hell, which um, you could also refer to and listen to, which is wonderful. Lewis often said that we live in the shadow lands, that our life here is simply a shadow and a reminder of the incredible life that is to come. And he was right. I would encourage you to grab any or all of his works and dive in. They will transform you and teach you and educate you. They'll elevate your mind and your spirit and your soul. I am very grateful to this incredibly great man. Thank you so much for joining me. If you have not gotten your copy of uh, our free book, The Mission Driven Life, please head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and get your ebook and audiobook there, and we will see you next time.